I looked at it like this. I've wanted to be a sports broadcaster all my life. This is an opportunity at a home Paralympic Games for Channel 4 to be a presenter. Even though it wasn't guaranteed, even the mere possibility, I just thought it's worth risking. And a couple of friends of mine said, I don't know, that's quite a big contract that the club are offering you, you know. <laughs> you know, that's quite a lot of money. And I was like, I hear it, I hear it, but this is my dream. Hello, hello, welcome to How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm Tunde, and today we have on the show Jordan Jarrett Bryan, former wheelchair basketball Paralympian turned broadcaster. He is Channel 4's main sports reporter, and he's also a presenter on Talk Sport and a regular guest on The Guardian Football Weekly. In this episode, he talks about how he didn't let his disability hold him back. We talk a little bit about his well-known dad and how calling out TalkSport live on air forced the radio station to improve its record on diversity. Check it out. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm very good, mate. Very good. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, absolute pleasure. I've been uh, you know, trying to get you on for, for quite a while. And uh, I am a big fan of quite a few of your, I mean, you, you, you appear in different formats in, in different ways. But, I, I'm um, all over the place is what you're yeah. saying. I'm everywhere. I'm, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Ubiquitous, <laughs> that's, the, that's the word, ubiquitous. But um, <laughs> and I'm assuming that you're, uh, are you recording the Channel 4 News later today or is, how, how does that? I'm not today. I'm not in today. Um, I'm in later from this week, but today I'm doing other, other bits and pieces, other jobs. Well, well, we'll certainly get into Channel 4 uh, a bit later. But um, yeah, let's go right back to the start, as we always do with our guests, where you were born. I, I, I understand that you are a South Londoner. So where, 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 did you, where were you born and where did you grow up? Born and raised in Brixton, for those that know South London. Uh, yeah, born in Brixton. I grew up in South London. So I lived in Brixton for a couple of years after I was born. And then uh, I moved uh, to... Well, before Dulwich, I moved to Brockley for a very brief period and then um, to West Dulwich where my, um, me and my mum, we, we, we lived for, for many years. My brother came along later on. But yeah, um, South, born Brixton, but brought up mainly um, in, in West Dulwich. And would you consider your childhood, you know, particularly your primary school years, how would you assess those days were they happy were they kind of like average how would you they, they were great mate they were really good I, I i don't i didn't have any issues or qualms about my upbringing or childhood it was um it was joyous i had great friends i had great family lots of cousins of my of my age as well i enjoyed going to school i i, I liked school i uh, didn't do as well in school as i probably should have done um but but i enjoyed it and that in a weird way is probably part of the reason as to why I didn't do well because I probably enjoyed it a bit more than I should have um having a bit too much fun um but no it was great man I, I went to a school St Luke's in West Norwood which is a primary school which was about 20 minutes walk or so from from where I lived um I'm still friends to this day with one of my friends from then um Warren who to, to this day is one of my best friends didn't have any major issues no no major problems at, at school Made friends quite easily, got on with most people quite well. Um, yeah, yeah, man. Just, uh, those early years were were fine and dandy for me. 
I'm always envious of people that, you know, can keep friends from uh, primary school or you know, let, let alone, you know, secondary school, but particularly primary school. I mean, that is just, because obviously, I guess for a lot of people, you're, you're most completely different back then. To- totally. And and you know what? It's a really good point you, you raised there because and it's something that I've flagged recently because um, I was lucky enough to, my mum and my girlfriend put on a surprise 40th uh, dinner party for me uh, a few weeks ago. And there I got to just, I, I knew it already in terms of my friendship, but I got reminded then of all of the friends that I have in my life. And not only that, but the fact that I've got friendships that are like 35 years deep. I'm 40 now and I've got friends that I've been friends with. So my friend Warren, I've got a friend Natalie, who I grew up with when I moved to Dulwich. And these, I'm not talking about like I've known them for 35 years because the people you know for most of your life, but there might be a 10-year gap here where you do your separate thing or a five-year gap here, five years. No, no, no. We've been consistently in touch and friends and done stuff for the majority of that 35 years. These are people that um, are like my family. And I'm just blessed. I'm very fortunate. And I, and I, and I know I'm fortunate because lots of people that I've come across over the, over the years, I hear say things like, I've only got two good friends or I've got one really fr- good friend that I trust. I'm like, wow, I must be super rare, super lucky because I've probably got, and my bar for friendship, believe it or not, is actually quite high, but I've probably got, about 10 people that I would count on as my brothers and sisters, people that I genuinely would call a friend, genuinely important to me, genuinely would be devastated if they was not in my life for for whatever reason. And some people have one, some people don't have any. So the fact that I've got so many over the course of 20 to 35 years, it's, it's, it's a blessing. It's definitely a blessing. Yeah, Absolutely. And um, you mentioned your mum a few minutes ago in terms of um, putting on this this surprise party for you. What role did she play in your your childhood and keeping you on the on the straight and narrow? Huge, huge. My, my, my mum's probably the single most important reason as to why I am who I am today. I mean, when when I did a brief speech at this dinner, um, which to be fair, my mum and dad put it on. I don't want to. Uh, cut my dad out because he was involved in organizing it as well so i don't want to be unfair but i I said when i addressed all my friends and family but there that my dad has always been the man i've aspired to be but my mum is the reason i am the person i am my dad is like massive for me i love my dad I, i love everything he represents and what he's about and i've always wanted to be like him and in many ways i am like my dad um, but I grew up with my mum and my mum is the reason that I am the person that I actually am, um, which is a respectful human being. I'm a very polite human being. I'm a very ambitious, hardworking person. Um, I am someone that um, is very curious and has lots of questions. I'm very kind-hearted, kind-hearted, but equally can be quite harsh and hard on people. And I think I need to be as well. I think that all comes from, from, from my mum. So she's played a massive role in me wanting to achieve and be very ambitious and explore. Do you know what I mean? My mum said to me when I was very, very young, I remember it. She said, Jordan, I don't really care what job you do. You do what you want to do. But my advice to you would be pick a job that enables you to travel. Whatever job you do, 
pick a job that enables you to travel the world. And I've been very lucky, right, in that the three jobs and careers that I've had in my life have all been jobs that have involved traveling. So I was a professional basketballer for for five years, lived in Italy for, for five years. I was a, a DJ and club promoter for nearly 10 years. That took me all over the world. And, you know, my, my career, main career, if you like, being a journalist and TV reporter, that has also taken me global as well. So um, my mum was very, very instrumental in me being a, a very driven, ambitious person. And she's very, very important to me. We're very similar. We're both Scorpios as well. So we, we you know, we clash on certain things um, at times. But generally, if, yeah, if I was to attribute any one person to why I've become the person that I've become, it would definitely be my mum. I mean, you, you briefly touched on quite a number of things that I'm hoping we'll be able to get into in a bit more detail. You know, the DJing, obviously the, the, the journalism. But what many people may not know about you is that when you were a kid, basically, you had a prosthetic leg mm-hmm. um, Talk us through that. I mean, what, what impact did that have in your early in your early life? And I mean, by, by all accounts, it didn't seem to impact you to a massive degree. But but what what impact did that have on you? And and also your parents, because I think sometimes we are more conscious of the impact it has on the person. But sometimes the parents they don't get they get left out a little bit. So what what, what do you think the impact was on your parents at the time? Well, you kind of alluded to it just a second ago. The impact on on me and my parents was zero negatively or positively if I'm being really honest in terms of so just to kind of give context when I was I was born with a deformed my right foot was born deformed um I was born without a tibula and a fibula which are the two main bones in your leg um and so when I was 18 months uh, my mum and dad were told by the doctors that you know you don't have to amputate it you could leave it as it is I'd have had to have had like crutches and sticks to kind of stabilize it and keep it kind of like into, but I'd, I'd have a limp and I'd be I'd be lopsided but that's fine many people have that or and the better option would be to have um, an amputation and so 18 months years old I had an amputation which meant that I've had prosthetic legs um, since then basically um, and yeah going back to your question in terms of impact no impact no impact at all it didn't I've always been a confident person I don't know how confident I was at 18 months years old, but <laughs> I know that I've always been a confident person as long as I can remember. So it didn't dent my confidence in any way. I wasn't treated any differently um, by my school friends, by teachers. They're, 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 I don't have really a story where I can tell you of horror of when I was younger and because of my prosthetic leg and disability, it impacted me in a negative, in a negative way. Do you know what I mean? In fact, we might get onto it later on, but if anything, my disability has actually impacted me positively. I've actually got benefits from it during my career. But no, and in terms of my parents, no, it didn't impact them at all. Well, I, you know, I've never asked them. I've never actually asked them um, if it did, but nothing that I saw ever led me to believe that me being a disabled young child negatively affected them. It didn't affect how they parented me either. Yeah. Now, I, I know sort of by doing some research that you've always been into sports, you, you know, you're playing football when you were a kid. But I also know that writing was your big thing, even from a very early age. Where, where did the, the passion for writing come from, do you think? I don't know. I just think I was, I'm very curious. I just think writing was my outlet to, actually, no, wrong way around, actually. I think it came from just realising I had a particular style. I had, a, I had a very good creative writing style and that came from school. And then once I realised I had a style, 
um, a good, you know, a good writing style. Then I wanted to write more, and then I realised that actually I had interesting thoughts that I wanted to kind of get out, um, and hence going into journalism. So it, it all just kind of began from realising that the way that I wrote, people found it interesting, and I found it interesting, and I just wanted to write more and and develop my style, develop my writing technique, how I told stories, how I started something, how I ended something. I, I was just keen to really continue that. And that was just born out of a, I had a very early taste at school for, for, for creative writing. And then that led to, okay, now, now I know that I've got an interesting writing style. What am I going to write about? <laughs> and I just, all the thoughts in my head about things that were interesting to me, just, just, yeah, combined having something to write about with a good writing style you know, you're off and running, really. And I know it's quite a few years ago now, but do, do you remember back at school, were there any particular authors that really sort of captured your imagination or any any particular books that, you know, stand out in your mind? No, I mean, most people that are writers or enjoy writing do have a list of writers who they um, were either inspired by or just enjoyed reading their work. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have any, I don't have any, I read a lot of autobiographies, so they're the, they're the kind of books that I'm more interested in. So I don't really have um, uh, a list of writers or writing that I could refer to and say, yeah, I like their style or that book, you know, really shaped how I write, because I, I just don't have any. I just kind of developed my own style um, and kind of just wrote what was interesting to me. Yeah. Well, this led to you being uh, given a, a role at a magazine at the time called Live Magazine. At what age did you were you able to get that that job on that magazine? This was thirteen. So wow. m- my mum knew that I again enjoyed writing and had a, and had a good style. I was good at English at school, and so she said to me, "Oh, I've just seen an advert in the South London, South London Press. They're saying there's, there's a magazine in Brixton. They're looking for young people to get involved." you know, go along, check them out. So I was like, oh, that's cool, whatever. So I, I did, I went along um, and I said, yeah, I'm Jordan. <laughs> I like writing. Um, I'm local. Um, I'd like to get involved. And they were like, great. Um, started writing a couple of like music reviews and computer game reviews and a couple of like small articles to start off with. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the atmosphere there at the office uh, in Brixton. Uh, like the people that were there. The, the premise of the magazine was to help young people who had aspirations to want to be a journalist, a photographer, or a, a designer, the three elements of a magazine. And then they'd have professionals from those three areas and they'd pair you up with uh, professionals. So my, if you want to be a writer, they'd find someone from The Guardian or from, you know, The Times or whatever, The Mirror to pair you up with. If you want to be a photographer, again, they'd find a professional photographer to pair you up with. And that was your mentor. And my mentor at the time, I was paired up with a guy called Callum McGeoch, who's, again, to this day, still one of my very good friends. He was the editor at the time of a magazine called Dazed and Confused. Um, and it was great because I got to, his job was to kind of mentor me. So I did some work experience with him, but also I got to learn about the industry and I got to learn about how to network and how to deal with PRs and how to improve my writing style and how to find stories. And it was, it was great. Um, and then about six months after joining the magazine, they offered me the role as editor of the magazine, which was like, whoa. Like I'd had no experience in editing anything. I didn't know anything about this industry, but I just knew that it was something that I wanted to do. 
Um, and I've always been very big on leadership. I'm very fascinated by leadership and leaders. And I think of myself as a leader. Um, so the idea of kind of being the editor of this magazine where I had all these young people um, and my peers that I was now kind of responsible for was a role that really, a role and responsibility that really interested me. Um, and I learned, learned, I learned on my feet. I, you know, there was no, I had no experience. I, I didn't know about how do you just decide what's the front cover. I didn't know about how do you decide, you know, does your best article go early or does it go in the middle bit? How do you decide what warrants one pages versus what warrants three pages? These are all things I had to learn. How do you deal with PRs and record labels who are going to email you now because they want their 50 cent album or they want their Pharrell album to feature in your, in your magazine because your, your demographic of readers is who they want to get their music to. So it was it, all these things I had to learn on the job and I loved it. It was hard. It was very tough. And there were some things that there were learnings that were difficult, but it was enjoyable. It was, it was enjoyable. And I, um, I learned lots. I got made lots of contacts from it. And I was there for seven years. And by the, by the time I left, I'd done work experience for not only Days of Confused, but various other magazines. I'd done some youth consultancy with BBC and Channel 4. So when I left, when I left at 21, I had a portfolio of like eight magazines and eight front covers. I'd done work with people across the industry. I had a portfolio of work that was arguably and more impressive than some people that have been working in the industry for 10, 15 years. Do you know what I mean? I had, I had so much experience in that kind of seven or eight years that I was there. And it was great. It was great. The, the, the progression was, was fast and I enjoyed it and I, and I learned lots. Oh, it sounds amazing. I mean, particularly at that young age, you know, 13, 14, getting into, into the media industry and having all those different experiences sounds like an absolute ball. But um, in, in the background, um, again, many people might not know this about you, but you mentioned your dad earlier. He is actually a a, a record label boss, and you know, very influential in the um, drum and bass. In drum and bass, yeah. So, I mean, for people that don't know, it, it, uh, Jordan's dad is is Brian G, uh, record label boss at, at V Recording. So, how influential was he back then in terms of you know? Because I'm, I'm guessing that for a lot of people particularly if your dad's, you know, heavy into music and it's got, it's got that influence in that particular industry, that might, that might have influenced you also to get into the music business. But obviously, at least at the beginning, it didn't. So what, why do you think it didn't at that particular stage? Well, my, my, my dad was a presence in my life in that I didn't live with him, but I, you know, I, I saw him at least once a month. Um, so yeah, he, he wasn't like an absent dad. I was, I was around him enough that I felt like I had a dad but not so much that I was influenced by what he did. I was aware of what he did. So he's a DJ. He was a DJ. He's still a DJ now and runs a record label, as you mentioned. So I was aware of what he did, but I wasn't, I was never kind of influenced by it. Um, and also I, I, I love music, but my dad is passionate about music, you know, to the point where it's his life. People that work in music, it's, it's got to be your life. It's got to be more than just a job. It's got to be more than just, oh, I like music. It's like, no, no, no. Music is life. <laughs> um, and as much as I love music, it was never life for me. Um, so that's kind of, the, the, I guess, the two reasons why I didn't go down that route. One, I just was never, I was never, I wasn't around him enough to be, I don't know, if you like, infected by the music bug. But, but, but also, yeah, I just, it just wasn't in me like it, like it is in some people. Um, but he played a very big role in, 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 in my life slightly later on. So when I finished school, 
Um, and I kind of got into my later teens. I started to go to parties where he was doing club nights and he was DJing. And um, I got to spend a lot more time with him. I got to work with him because then I he ran, he ran and he saw that now, various club nights. And so uh, I got to run those. So I went from just attending them as like a young raver guy. Hey, I'm, I'm Brian G's son. Yeah, I'm the man. It's like, no one cares about that anymore. Now it's like, I'm running the nights. I'm booking the lineups. I'm booking the venues. I'm doing the the, the admin. I'm doing the the budgets. I'm doing the paying at the end of the night. Um, I'm actually running them. And I loved it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, one, because I got to work with my dad, but also because it was a new level of responsibility that I um, I hadn't had before. I, had, I hadn't had that before. So, um, yeah, I, 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 it took me into a different, different sphere, a different... A direction I didn't think I, I never thought I'd be going into the club night or the events space um, scene, but 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 I did, and, and, and I enjoyed it. And a big part of why I enjoyed it is because I was working with my dad. Yeah, so I guess you got to hang out with a lot of the the DJs in the space. Oh, mate, yeah. Big how, dogs, how, yeah. how was that? Yeah, how was that? I loved it because in in the drum and bass scene, everybody's really really cool. Like everybody's really nice. Everyone's really really good. Now, I've always said to, 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 to friends and people that I know, look, my dad's a very, very big figure in the drum and bass scene. And he's very, very respected. So it might just be that, you know what, because I'm Brian G's son, they felt they had to be nice to me. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that, 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 that could be true. But I don't think it is. I, I think they were genuinely nice to me because I'm a nice guy. And they saw that I was this young boy that was just coming into the scene, and you know I had manners, and I, you know, I was, I was, I was respectful. I treated people well. Um, at just coming into the scene, when I, when my, when my position, if you like, then transitioned into, I'm not now just Brian G's son. I'm now a DJ a little bit. Um, I think people then looked at me differently and thought, okay, no, good bit, bit of respect. He's playing his dues. He's doing the club circuit. He's doing. He's playing the bar sets, the early sets to 50 people. He's not just coming in and, you know what I mean, thinks he can just play to 2,000 people, two in the morning, prime time. No, he's doing these things. Then I transitioned into, I'm running the nights. So now it's a case of, okay, no, no, this guy's now booking us. <laughs> he's now paying our wages. He's the one that's going to be giving us work. So I think the respect level from me as a young boy raver to me as a DJ to me now as a club promoter um, made people just treat me Treat me well. And I think people, I'm a big believer in you treat people as you want to be treated. And I always treat people with respect. So I think there's a base level of, if that's what you're doing and that's what I was doing, people would then treat you with respect as well. On top of the fact that my dad is very well liked anyway, um, on top of that as well. So that was always, um, that was always really helpful. And people would look out for me. So if I, get, if I went to a club night, I went to a party and I was on the guest list or I was meant to be and I wasn't on. Someone would go, oh, no, 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 come, come, come with me, come with me. They, they just let me in with them. Or at the end of the night, if I was, if it was out of town, I wanted to get home, I didn't really have an obvious way to get home. It'd be like, oh, you go to London? Yeah, yeah, come, come, come with me. And I'll get a lift home. And that was A, because they had a respect for my father. But also I think it was because it's Jordan, isn't it? He's cool. He's, it's all right. There's no drama. If I'd have been a bit of a brat, be a spoiled brat, then they may have been like, yeah, no, you ain't come with us sort of vibe. Um, but yeah, they, they, they were good to me. I think one, because of my dad, but also because I think of myself. Well, I hope so anyway. <laughs> I'm, lo- I'm loving this. Just so many fingers in so many different pies. I mean, we've already kind of stepped over the fact that, you know, we, we talked about your, your, your passion for sports earlier and that obviously led you down a particular path into playing wheelchair basketball. So how did that come about? 
So my wheelchair basketball um, journey, interesting as well. So I started playing football when I was about, I played for a team called Melwood in, where were they? They were like Thornton Heathway uh, from the age of about maybe 10 for two or three years. Loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. And then I think third or fourth season in, maybe third season in, the coach told my mum, we can't re-sign Jordan for next season. It's like, oh, so why not? It's like, um, for insurance reasons, because of his prosthetic, we can't actually sign him because if he tackles someone, if someone tackles him, he could do some damage. Or even himself, he, he could damage himself, <laughs> um, which is true and fair and reasonable. But I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I was really upset about that. And so I... Um, I said to my mum, okay, well, I'm going to still play sports. Like, I love sports. Like, what, what are we going to do? She's like, okay, let's, let me see what I can do. And then, I don't know, I don't know how long it was, a few weeks, a few months later, she got back to me and she was like, I found this uh, this wheelchair basketball club in Hackney. And I was like, okay. Um, went along. Saw these guys playing wheelchair basketball. Didn't like it at all. Wasn't impressed. It was a bit like what's this <laughs> just didn't I just didn't get it just I just didn't get it um I was like yeah I'm not, I'm not sure about this um gave it a go didn't like it anyway went back the following week um again didn't like it back the following week hated it a bit less following week a bit less and then what really kind of hooked me in was that I got really good really quick um I got yeah I got, I got very good very quickly and that always helps right when you're when you're good at something even if you don't initially like it, if you're better than, than everybody else, you're like, okay, actually, I, I don't mind flexing a bit here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this life. This is all right. I'm winning. <laughs> Everyone likes the feeling of winning, even if it's in a sport that you don't like or something. If you're winning, that 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 makes up for a lot. Um, and yeah, before I knew it, I'd signed for this team called, they weren't a team at the time called East London Bullets, based in, uh, in Hackney. And there was a very kind of community, family, vibe to the group there. There was a guy called Leroy um, that I was um, was like, I don't like saying second father because I think that's quite disrespectful to my actual father, but he was definitely a father figure for me. Um, and uh, I loved him. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a massive figure in my life. Um, and his infection for life um, uh, and, and basketball. And he was an old man. He wasn't even young. He was in a chair, but he was, you know, he, he was, he was, I think when I first met him, he was like, uh, he must have been 50 when I first met him. And by the time he passed away, of which he was still playing, by the way, he was mid-60s, easily mid-60s. Um, and yeah, he, he was a big part of why I why I, I took to it. And then a couple of, was it a year later? Maybe 18 months later, I got a call from Great Brim, GB, junior squad, saying, you know, we want you to come along and train with us for some trials. I was like, wow, this has escalated really quickly. And then before I knew it, I was in the GB squad, the GB junior squad. Um, we won a couple of championships, a couple of Europeans. And then th- that's the 21. At 21, like in all sports, the normal transition then is that, okay, well, I'm going to then, you then go into the senior squad. So it then goes to GB junior squad, uh, sorry, the GB squad. But at that point, I had a decision to make as to whether I wanted to do that or continue with my... Um, journalism because I was I was writing and I'd, I'd, I'd live magazine this time and that was my bigger 
bigger thing, but they're both full-time jobs and you just couldn't do both. So it was, I had to pick. Um, plus I was doing club, I was doing club promoting at this point as well. I was doing club promoting, DJing, playing wheelchair basketball, and I was writing uh, for an editing live magazine. So it was a lot. Um, so I decided that I wouldn't go to the GB junior squad uh, and I would just keep playing at club level, but not at international level. And I, and I pursued my, my career in media. But correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't, didn't you end up playing professionally in, in Italy for a few years? I so, did, I did. So yeah. that was a few years later. So that was, so when I d- didn't decide to go to the, the senior squad, that was 22. Um, and then for the next four or five years, I continued playing um, club basketball. And then I got a, I got an email about five years later from a club in, initially it was Spain, a club in Spain email being said, we're looking for a forward, would you like to come out? And I was like, cool, yeah, I'm up for that. Um, I got back to them and said, yeah, I'm up for it. And then and then never heard from them. Then they came back to me. So I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. Maybe they found somebody else, I don't know. And then the following season, I got an email from a team in Italy saying the same thing. We'd, like, we'd love to sign you up to, to be with us. Uh, for the next season, blah blah. I was like, yeah, I'm up for that. At this point, I, I it was a it was a total off the whim, right? I I didn't know any Italian. I've never been to Italy before. I knew nothing about the country. It was just a team hit me up opportunity. So I went out for a weekend to meet them all, train with them once, see if I liked it. I was like, yeah, it's, right. it's not too bad. And then I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign for you. So I signed, came back to to the UK um, for a few weeks, then went, and then went back out with all my stuff for um for pre season. Um, and did that for five years. Wow. So what, what was that like? I mean, I'm not so familiar with, with the leagues over there in, in that particular sport. I mean, what were the crowds like? What were the rewards like? Was it enough to sustain you? Or do you have to have a little sort of few side hustles to, to, to pay the rent and stuff? No, no, no. So there are three, maybe four, definitely three, probably four professional leagues in Europe uh, where, they, where, they, they, where they pay to play. So Italy, Germany, Turkey and Spain. They're the four leagues uh, in Europe where you get paid to play. The team that I played for was in the second division in Italy. So it it was enough for me to get paid a full-time salary. But there's obviously in the Premier Division in Italy, it's obviously more money. And I had had good friends of mine um, that were playing in the top division in Italy and they were, they wrong, they want good money. In terms of crowds, in, in our league, we'd be getting anything from a hundred to 500 people t- t- showing up, which for me coming from the UK where you just get friends and family coming, um, that was a massive step up in the top league. You can get a couple of thousand. You can get a couple, you can get, you can get, you can get a few thousand people showing up um, to watch you play. Um, and, and for what is, you know, deemed a minority sport, you know, a, f- a few thousand people coming to and paying to come watch you play that is, is pretty impressive. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, on a, on a good day, at our level, we'd get up to five hundred people come in um, to watch us play, and I lo- but I loved it. I loved, I loved, I loved playing it. I loved the league. I loved the experience of being in a new country. Obviously, being a league, we got to play everybody in our leagues, and that there's some of those teams were in the north, so we got to travel the whole of Italy, playing teams in the north, in the south, in the centre. Um, it was amazing. Learn a new language. It was great. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was a really good experience. I learned lots and it was a good growing. It was a good life lesson for me to be out there for all those years. And I, no, I, 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 I would never um, devalue what that experience gave me. 
So you were doing this for four or five years. I mean, in the back of your mind, you know, guessing football, because that's the sport I'm most familiar with, that there's always talk about, you know, when you get nearer the, the retirement years, you start thinking about what, what are they, what are you going to do when you retire? Will they get into media? Will they get into coaching? Did you have similar thoughts? I mean, I, I know you also had the, um, obviously the journalist, journalism background, but were you thinking of going back to journalism or were you thinking about doing something completely different? So what happened with me was I was happy out there. And <laughs> the, 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 the year before I came back, I was uh, negotiating um, a bigger contract with the club. I said, look, I want, they, want, they want me to come back for another year. I said, yeah, I'd love to come back another year, but I need, I need an increase in my salary next year. They were like, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> we can't afford any more. I was like, okay, okay. I've got a slight problem now then. Because I, <laughs> um, I, I, I need to get an increase in what I'm paid. So if that can't work, then we'll have to leave it here. Oh, no, no, I want him to stay. I said, that's fine. I want to stay, but I, I can't on that contract. So they were like, okay, let's see what we can do. Now, whilst they were going away um, to check again if they could increase my salary, that was the summer where Channel 4 had won the broadcasting rights to the Paralympics for, for 2012. So this is 09. I didn't know about any of this. So I'd come back that summer. Um, I, said, I came back to the UK every summer for the off-season for like about two months. Um, maybe a bit less than two months, um, just to kind of see family, friends, catch up with my people here before I went back out for pre-season. I met up with a friend of mine, Sam Conniff, who had had a meeting with, at Channel 4 about something unrelated, but he mentioned to me, oh, did you know they're looking for, they've just won the rights to, to, to the games in three, in the London games in three years' time. They're looking for new talent to present their coverage. Um, I mentioned your name. The, the application process to be a presenter or reporter for the games is gone. You've missed it. But the guy I spoke to said, if you can get a show rule in like yesterday, he'll consider it. So I was like, damn, okay. So I phoned a friend. I said, from my friend Charlie, said, Charlie, um, I need your help. We've got to record like a show rule like now. <laughs> um, so we met up, did a show rule, sent it in. They liked it. They were like, oh, you'd be great. And A, I had a background in media, tick. B, I was from London. The games were in London. Tick. See, I'd play the Paralympic sport. Um, so I had, I had, you know, I had a, a, a grounding in disability sport already. Tick. It was just like, this is per you're perfect for us. So I was like, great. So they offered me, um, so they said to me, we can't guarantee you that you will be on, you know, you, you'll be one of our presenters, but we're doing a two year training program where we train up people to be presenters. And at the end of it, hopefully you'll be a presenter. So it wasn't even a guarantee. Anyway, in the meantime, my club back in Italy have got back to me and said, oh, yeah, sorted. Yeah, that contract you said you wanted. We've managed to find the money for it. No problem. Um, we, can, we, can, we can afford to use contract. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, I'm really sorry. But <laughs> actually, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you, you, you doing that. I'm actually going to go back to the UK because um, I've got an opportunity to be, to be a presenter, to be a broadcaster. Um, they didn't take it very well, but this is my career. And I think I looked at it like this. I've wanted to be a sports broadcaster all my life. This is an opportunity at a home Paralympic Games for Channel 4 to, to be a presenter. Even though it wasn't guaranteed, even the mere possibility, I just thought it's worth risking. And a couple of friends of mine said, I don't know, that's quite a big contract that the club are offering you, you know. <laughs> you know, there's quite a lot of money. Um, 
And I was like, I hear it, I hear it, but this is my dream. I, I, I've got to pursue my dream and I want to do what I've always wanted to do. So yeah, I, I told the club, I, I, I politely declined the, the contract and I took up the offer for Channel 4. We got trained up for, for two years. I did get to be a presenter, a reporter at the games. Uh, the, the, the coverage won all the awards that were going. It was a massive success. It was great. You know, you'll remember the injection of energy that the Paralympic Games in 2012 gave gave the country and Channel 4 was a large part of that. And then off the back of that, um, I got uh, the rap Channel 4 party. I was sat on the table with the then new editor of Channel 4 News. And he was saying he'd seen my work during the coverage of Channel 4's Paralympic coverage. He's like, yeah, he did a really good job, really enjoyed it. I was saying, yep, I loved it. I want to do more sports broadcasting. He was like, oh, interesting. But we're looking to up our sports output on our, on Channel 4 News. We've got a sports correspondent, but we want to try and build on that. So I was like, oh, interesting. Tell me more. He was very tipsy. I got him more drunk, managed to get a meeting with him. And then I went in about two or three weeks later to meet him, Ben DePere, good guy. Um, and I thought I was just going in for a chat or like at best a little tour and a talk and the possibility of maybe doing like a weekend's work experience. I would have taken that. But he was like, no, 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 we want you to come in for three months and just like, let's do three months, three weekends. Sorry, every weekend for three months um, when the sport's around, do some sports wraps for us and we'll, um, we'll take it from there. Three months came and went, oh, let's do three more months. Three months came and went, oh, let's do it again. And then just kept on going and going and going. And I've literally been there now. To, when was 2012? I'm so awful. That was 11 years ago, 2012? 11 years ago, yeah. So, um been there nearly 12 years so yeah isn't that great like you know you're just there you know playing sport playing basketball kind of just pursuing your passion and then all these opportunities appear to you as a result of you playing basketball it was amazing it was amazing I, I'm a big believer in timing right so I think the timing at that point everything just kind of went in came into place and you know I had the offer for my club but I had this this I think it was a test I think I was being tested to see if we were going to take what was effectively a gamble because the, the, there was no guarantee I was going to be a presenter. It was a gamble versus this contract, which was a good contract which I'd asked for, which was a, which was a guarantee. But I took, I took the gamble um, and, and it, you know, it, it proved, it proved um, the correct choice. And, and what was even more sweet about the whole experience was <laughs> when it came to the Paralympic in 2012, my first gig my first reporting gig, so I was put on the wheelchair basketball for obvious reasons, but my first gig was reporting on a game, I think it was GB versus Iran. And it was the, it was the guys that I'd left behind three or four years earlier. So when I could have gone to the senior team, all the guys that were there, pretty, most at least half the squad that was in the senior squad there were the guys that I was playing with at junior level a few years earlier. So it was a beautiful kind of... Um, full circle if you like of like my first gig on tv is reporting on and interviewing my friends essentially do you know what I mean my mates it was um it was it was it was great and you you mentioned there about the you know the 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 channel 4 coverage which at the time I think was um was quite sort of revolution not revolutionary but sort of inspiring and it's certainly better than a lot of other sort of international broadcasters. But what, what do you think has been the legacy um, since since that time? Has that kind of momentum carried on? Has it, has it kind of fallen back a bit, do you think? For the Paralympic Games? Yeah, and just sort of, you know, being positive about 
disability and you know not not holding you back necessarily i th- i think there's definitely been a positive legacy that's come from what Channel 4 did and what the Paralympics did in 2012. I think that the word inspiration is often overused and often wrongly used. And it's one of my kind of slight bugbears about when people use the word inspiration. Inspiration actually means I have seen or I have heard or I have experienced something and, and such, it's made me want to go and do something. That's what inspiration is. What I tend to find people, um, when they use the word inspiration, what they really mean is, that made me feel good. So they say they watch the Paralympic Games and they're like, oh, it's so inspirational. It's so inspirational. I'm so inspired. It's like, okay, cool. So what are you inspired to do? That's different from, I watched the Paralympic Games and it made me feel great. That, that's fine as well. But that's, not, that's not being inspired. Inspired is, I want to lose weight. And I saw you do something and it made me think, hmm, I'm going to go and now do something to lose take weight. A- or Take action. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. want to get a job. And I saw your podcast and it inspired me to go and get the job that I want to go and get. That's what inspiration means. Inspiration isn't just, I feel good about something. And so I think people use the word inspiration when they watch the Paralympic Games coverage. But when I really checked it, I was like, what have you been inspired to do? Let's separate. I was inspired to go and do something. I saw someone win um, table tennis with no arms. A Japanese athlete, he won table tennis gold. He has no arms. He has no arms. That inspired somebody to think, well, if a Japanese player with disability having no arms can achieve something, a gold medal at a Paralympic Games, learn how to edit a podcast (laughs) if he can do that then i can do this that's what inspiring means so i think i think people often use the word inspiration connected with the games but they're using it wrongly what i do think was a positive uh, impact from the games was i think a lot of societal i've actually kind of to some degree gone backwards on this and i'll get to that in a second but i think what we did the initial few years of the back of the 2012 games was I genuinely saw a difference in how people perceived and treated disabled people. So the example I often use is I, if I get on the bus prior to 2012, if a disabled person got on the bus in a, in a wheelchair, got on the bus, there'd be a kind of, there'd be kind of like a, I'd, I'd look at people and I'd see people with a look of sympathy and that poor disabled person. And that might be a human reaction to seeing someone getting onto a bus or on a wheelchair. Okay, fine. What I saw, what I noticed several times after the games, when I saw a person in a wheelchair get on the bus, would be huffing and puffing and a, a vibe of, can you just hurry up? We're trying to get to work. And I like that. Let me tell you why. Because that means those people on the bus who are huffing and puffing and want that person to hurry up and get on the bus... They're not doing it because they're nasty people. What they're doing is they're like, I've got work to get to. And they're treating that person in the wheelchair the exact same way they would treat anybody else who was doing something that they perceived to be delaying the bus getting moving. Like, I've got things to do. So although people might see the huffing and the puffing as disrespectful, I see it as they're treating that person in the wheelchair the exact same as they would treat anybody else. 
And I think that for me, in a really kind of perverse way, is what equality is all about. If you're going to abuse a, a, an able-bodied person getting on the bus for holding the bus up, treat the person in the wheelchair the same way. And that for me is my kind of really kind of quirky example of how I saw a difference in how people, the, the people weren't huffing and puffing because the person's in a chair. They're huffing and puffing because the person is, in their mind, taking time to get the bus moving again. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think the impact from the games was, was, was amazing. I think the way Channel 4 showed the games and showed the athletes was amazing. Because we weren't just treating it as these are disabled athletes. We were treating them as athletes with a disability. And there's a slight difference there between the two. It was athlete first, disability second. And I think what we tried to do was show them as just athletes. You know, what some of these people are doing is equally as impressive as what Usain Bolt does, is equally as impressive as what Kevin De Bruyne does, is equally as impressive as what Andrew Joshua does. They're athletes. <laughs> they have a skill and a craft in a particular sport. They just happen to be in a chair. They just happen to be partially sighted. They just happen to have one arm. Who cares? These are still high-level athletes. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm going on talking too much now, but I think in answer to your question, I think the impact was generally a positive one. Um, and, and I noticed that for quite a few years post-2012. And I think, I think the games as well, because uh, I remember going, I think, you know, one thing that Brits do really well is attend sports, whether it would be football, tennis, whatever it is, rugby, you know, it's usually sold out. And um, if I, yeah, I, mean, I just remember going on that, I think it was a Saturday, uh, Friday or Saturday, and it was sold out. So that, that, was, that was really good. Um, I mean, we, we are kind of running out of time and I, I've still got so many questions to, to ask you. I mean, one of the other things that you've been involved in is setting up your own YouTube channel. I know that's been quite influential over, over, over the years. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the, the YouTube channel and, and the kind of people that you've had on the, on the debates as well? Sure, yeah. So working in mainstream TV, I noticed about eight or so years ago that um, there just wasn't, in terms of my, the, the, you know, black people, I just, I just noticed that there were particular black people that were on TV, uh, some of whom I have huge respect for and think they add value, many of whom I don't. And there were many stories that I just don't think were being told. There were many perspectives that I don't think were being told either. And so I just thought, hmm. And and, and worse than that, there were lots of people um, who were talking about issues pertaining to Black uh, lives and Black culture that had no right to. So I'll name them. Your Piers Morgans, your Lawrence Foxes, your Nick Ferraris. There's, there's so many more. These are people that were just talking about my community and my people with no authority or no real um, understanding of certain issues. So I thought, you know what? I want to set up my own sh- my own channel, my own show, where I enable people, black people, to talk about these important subjects, but in a safe space. So it was an all-black panel. The show we started was called It's All Black Academic. And it was, yeah, a debate show that I hosted where we talk about issues relating to, to, to black people um, that was solely from black people. Now, the key was we don't have to all agree. This wasn't about having three, four panellists that all agreed on a particular issue. It was like, no, no, no. Actually, I think the importance of developing an issue or understanding something or, or solving a problem is to have a difference of opinion. It's like, okay, I feel this way. You feel that way. Okay, how can we try to understand each other better to get to a solution where we can fix this problem? Um, and we had some 
we discuss everything from, you know, how Brexit, because that was the big thing at the time, how Brexit would impact black people in the UK to kind of more fun subjects like who are the best black athletes of all time. We talk about um, mental health issues and private schools versus uh, state schools. But we'd also talk about comedy and, you know, what is comedy in, 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 in the present day and what is it and how, how best do, do black comics do so it, it was a it was a variety of really kind of important topics to some kind of more lighthearted ones. We did that for about four or five years. Did sixteen, did uh, eight seasons of that. That was a big success. And then the channel kind of I wanted to expand it beyond just the one show. So then we had other shows on the platform on the channel. Um, we had a we had a, we had an upskilling show called Level Up. We had an, uh, a dating on date. Sorry, we had a relationship show called That's the Way Love Goes. We had um, an, another show called Black and Winning, where we identified black people in the community who were just doing great things and wanted to celebrate them. We did an interview with them and showcase what they were doing, and it was great. It was it was um, it was uh, we did a podcast also called Working It Out, um, and we just had lots of content on there, um, and it's still on there, so people can check out the, the channel Blackademic. That's Blackademic, not spelled with any C, so B L A K A D E M I K. But now we've pivoted slightly more to a production company because what I noticed was halfway through that process of filming all that content was that I was using the same crew. And one of my big frustrations in working in mainstream TV is that when I'm on set, when I'm, when I'm on location, when I'm filming, most of the crew was white and there was men. I'm like, where are the women? Where are the black people? Where are the disabled people? So my crew is very, very diverse, very, very um, talented and hardworking experience. But it looks like the kind of company that I want to reflect who, who I am so um, yeah Blackademic is like we're a production company now um, but there's plenty of content people can still kind of delve into and it was just basically just trying just like I say just give up, give us a point of view to give us a voice that was unfiltered and that's what the internet and YouTube allows us now to do in a way that pre-YouTube we had to wait for the BBC or Channel 4 or Sky to do these things for us and nine times out of ten they wasn't <laughs> No, it's. Um, I mean, I've been watching the content over the years, and uh, I think you know one of the one of the great things about what you're doing and what you have done is that it just showcases that we're we're not a monolith. You know, we we are we do have different views. We are from 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 different backgrounds. So yeah, I've really appreciated that. And uh, you know, people, if you want to go and check it out online, I'll uh, attach a, a link in the show notes. But you know, he's had on people like Afua Hirsch, the the journalist. You've had on. People like Jamelia over the over Jamelia, recent years. Dame Baptiste has been on a couple of times. Simeon Brown, top journalist. Darren Brown, top journalist. Yeah, we've had um, we've had uh, Kahindi Andrews, Scarlett Douglas has been on Level Up. We've had some 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 safe safe home. Williams does a lot of activism uh, work in the community. He's been on the podcast, working it out. No, we've been we've been blessed. We've been blessed. With some great great voices. And I, I actually thought it was pronounced black at the mic, but um, obviously I've got it completely wrong. <laughs> that's a new one, black, black yeah. at the mic. Okay, I like, you know what? That's not actually, that's actually not a bad, um, that's, not, that's not a bad idea, actually. I haven't thought of that. No, black, black at the mic is good. Okay, one okay, okay, that's good. Um, and um, your pursuits over, over the years also led you to start working on Talk Sport, the, the radio channel. And I, I, I particularly noticed that you were responsible for certainly presenting. I don't know if you produced it as well, but um, a, a show called a documentary called South London Talent Factory, and that was kind of focusing on 
the kind of talent pool, the black talent pool in, in the South London area. That was fantastic. And uh, I mean, apart from that, I was just wondering as well, I mean, you basically called out talk sport around the time of George Floyd and, you know, Black Lives Matter about them not having enough representation on the, on the channel which I think personally is fantastic. But I mean, how much responsibility do you, do you take for improving the amount of diversity that they have on the station? Uh, Good question. Um, I mean, yeah, I I don't want to self-grandisize myself as like being the, the arbiter of, of, of talk sports uh, changing of the ways. I mean, at that time I, I had nothing to lose. Right. And I just think they need to be, they need, they need to be called out. Um, and I'm that sort of person. I don't, I don't mind calling you out. I don't mind being called out, but I don't mind calling other people out if I think it needs to be done. And the facts were TalkSport then had zero black presenters on their station. They had one mixed producer on the show. And I'm just like, what the hell is this? How the hell is the biggest radio station in the world only got, you know, that level of representation? How, how much have black people contributed to, to sports and uh, never mind getting onto football and, and, and that, even that aside, the fact that any company now can have, you know, a hundred plus employees and they have one who's, who's black and who's, who's, who's mixed race is just disgusting for me. And I just thought there was a lot of, you know, chest, pu- chest pushing out of companies across the board in the commercial sector and the corporate sector about, you know, we stand with Black Lives Matter and we do this. And I'm like, you know what? If you guys really believe in, you know, Black Lives Mattering and really believe that diversity is important, you know what you can do? You can stick your black squares, you can stick your <laughs> statements and actually just give people equal opportunities to work. That's what black people, that's what people want, an equal opportunity to work. And if you do that, you will see there's so much black talent. I've got to shout out my boy, Leon Mann, who runs BCOMS, who's doing so much work to ensure that um, the sports media industry is doing the work in training and educating the industry about the amount of young black talent, or just young talent, but a lot of it is black, that is coming through. The excuse of, oh, but we just didn't know where to find a black camera operator. Oh, we just didn't, we just didn't know where to find a black producer. It's nonsense. That, that, them days are done. So it's about, if you want to support if you really believe that what George Floyd's murder symbolizes, which is an inequality in, in society, then what you can do is look at yourselves, open up the car bonnet and look under it and work out why is it that you only have one person of color working in your company? That is disgraceful. So I, I called them out. Luckily, the, the, the new boss at the time, Lee Clayton, and his, his, um, his deputy, uh, Laurie, was uh, Palacio. They were open. And they were like, you're right. You're totally right. You're totally right. They met me. They said, look, we want, we, 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 we want to do more. We want to do better. Um, and they did. They, they did, to be fair. They, they brought me in. They brought in Adi Oladipo. Hugh Wozencroft, I think, had just joined a bit earlier. They brought in a couple of, you know, a few new black producers. And the makeup of the station um, definitely changed, went, went in the right direction. They did some really good output work. So it wasn't just the fact that there was now some black people working there. The output changed. That's what's going to happen. If you have more women working on the station, you're going to hear that in, what, in, in, in the output. You have more black people working at the station, you're going to hear that through the output. Um, and it represents everyone, all sports fans. I will say, and I'm just going to say it because I just think it needs to be said, they've gone backwards. There's new management there now. 
that's disappointing. Uh, but I've, I've, I've kind of, it's not my fight anymore. I'm focusing on, to be honest now is, and it has been for a few years. My focus isn't on trying to educate white people. That's not, I'm, I'm done with it. Other people can do that work. No problem. My focus is trying to empower black people. That's my focus. My focus is trying to empower mine rather than educating white people. That, that's, I, I can't, I don't have the time and energy to do that anymore. They can do that educating themselves. My focus is how do I empower black people? I can't call out TalkSport anymore. I can't, I can't do that anymore. TalkSport, they've got to do what they feel is best for them. Fine. I know what the outcome will be, but I can't put time and effort into that anymore. I can put time and effort into Black Academic. I can put time and effort into speaking to people like you and trying to empower people that are coming through and doing the work to try and be the next presence um, in the industry. That's that's my focus now, to be honest. But Talk Sports great. I still work there. I'm doing a show uh, this weekend, I think. Um, so I do. Show, I, I love working on Talk Sport. I enjoy working there. Um, there's some good people there, and I love sports. So it's a great place to talk about what's happening in sport. But in terms of being a progressive, produ- pro- a progressive place, um, I, I think they're taking back uh, backward steps. If I'm if I'm being honest in that in that sense. Two quick questions for me. I know I know we're running out, running out of time, but um, this is a question that we always ask everybody that comes on. You've had a tremendous amount of success in your career to date. Um, how much of that success do you think is down to either luck, hard work or talent? You know, if you had to choose one out of the three, what would you say has been the biggest contributor to your to your success so far? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying I, I think all three are the reality, right? I don't think anybody gets anywhere without hard work, luck and talent. Uh, talent, mm, you can blag it. If you, if, you work, if you work hard out, I'm very lucky, you can. But definitely you need, to, you need luck and you need, you need, to, kind of, you need to hustle. Um, I think hard work. Because I think I know the things that I'm talented at and I'm very talented at certain things, but I don't think I'm the most talented at any one thing. But I think there's very few people that can outwork me. There's people that I work in my space. There's people that work in my field. There's people that I work with who I would say I can show the humility to acknowledge when someone is better than me at something. And there are plenty of people that are better than me at certain things. There's not many people that, uh, that I think work as hard as I do. And I think working hard is also about context, right? So you, you can be the hardest working person, but are you working smart? And I think that's maybe what I need to pivot towards better at working. If you're just, you know, working hard, 23 hours a day, that's, that's, that's good to a degree, but that, that's not going to get you where you need to get to. So I, of, of the three, I, I, I would say the most, the biggest element is, is, um, is, my, is, is, is hard work, but also luck. I'd be a damn liar if I sat here and said that I've not had breaks. I've had huge breaks, but I'm a big believer in the hardest working people in life get the biggest breaks and the luckiest people in life are the hardest working people. I, I think the two, nine times out of 10, are intrinsically linked. The, the people that go furthest in life, I think, is because they work hard. And when you work hard, you get breaks. You, you get luck. You don't even know that it's coming. and just, It just comes. And then with your talent on top of that, you can't be stopped. And just just to round things off, uh, Jordan, you've been an absolute gent on the uh, on the show. What's next for you? You know, you've interviewed some of the biggest stars in sports. You know, the likes of 
Usain Bolt and AJ, as you mentioned earlier, Jose Mourinho. Are you looking to transition to becoming like a main anchor or at maybe uh, at a <laughs> news station? Because I think Mark Austin on, on ITV, or I think he's on Sky now, but that, he actually started out being a sports journalist, didn't he? He used to present all of the the sports um, broadcasts and then he, he, he was able to to transition and became the main, an- main anchor. Is that something that's on your radar or what, what's next for you? Yes and no. So I, I actually, I say no, because I'm actually trying to transition more into being behind the scenes. I'm trying to actually kind of move into the role of exec producer um, and producer. I'm trying to make more shows than actually be in them. But yes, in the sense that there is a show that I've been trying to get off the ground for a couple of years now that I will produce and I will make at one point. Uh, at some point soon that does involve me being um presenting and being on camera so the, the ambition isn't i'm not the kind of person that has to be on tv right in fact i prefer radio to tv um tv just pays more <laughs> that's the only difference tv just pays more than radio but actually i prefer radio i enjoy radio much more um, i don't have to have my face on tv i'm not it's not i'm not vain like that um i'm happily being behind the scenes and, and doing production um, I, I think I get more enjoyment out of that as well than I do actually presenting, although I do enjoy presenting. Um, so no, the, the goal isn't for me to kind of in two years' time be the, the face of Channel 4 News or the <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing like that. No, that, that's not where my path's going to go. My path next year is to try and continue making really good, interesting, progressive, impactful content. I think TV's lazy. TV's so lazy um, and it's in a box and it finds it very difficult to think out of that box and so I want to um, I want to make content that 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 uses the money of the corporates and the commercial that actually impacts the people on the ground level and young people from communities where I'm from. Um, that's that's next for me. I want to help people. I want to use my production company to make some really progressive, interesting, engaging content that makes a change. Um, I'll be on TV. Uh, Jordan, will, I'll be fine. What I'm focused on is my company. Um, making an impact and helping other people, so that in the, that for twenty twenty four really is the um, is the is the immediate goal. Great stuff. Well, we look forward to more content and seeing your face more on uh, Channel Four and on on Talksport and and on Football Weekly as well for football yes, fans. Yes, sir. Yes, Jordan yes. appears pretty regularly on the Guardian Football Weekly, so you know check check that out. But thank you so much, Jordan, for your time, and uh, we wish you all the best for for next year. Thanks, bro. You too. Cheers great to get Jordan on the podcast as he has so many fingers in so many different pies. Do you agree with Jordan that the luckiest people in life are generally the most hardworking? Let us know. Leave your feedback in the Spotify app or you can hit us up on the socials as usual using at how I crushed it or send us an email to how I crushed it at gmail.com. If you do get a chance, do check out some of the content that his company Blackademic has put out. And also, if you are vaguely interested in sports, do check out the documentary that he was involved in, a talk sport production called South London Talent Factory. Really, really interesting. I'll include links to both shows in the show notes and catch you on the next show. <laughs>